find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you in Romans 5, uh, 1 to 11, as we continue this series we've been going through uh, the past few weeks. Do you feel blessed? Is God blessing you at the moment? The problem with blessings, I find, is that not that we don't have them, but that we're prone to forget them. I know that's certainly true in my life. We say, don't we, count your blessings, because actually it's much easier to count your problems, isn't it? Well, this morning we're going to count our blessings. There are seven of them here in this passage, seven blessings that flow from all that we've been seeing before. It's summarised there as the fact that we're justified by faith. That is that we're us trusting in Jesus is what declares us right with God. Not anything that we do, not good works that we try to do, not keeping rules or, or laws or anything like that. Not religious ceremonies, but trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross alone. Now it's worth noting as we start this passage that we need to remember that this passage was written to Christians. It was written to Christians to strengthen them in the gospel. So as we read this, this isn't sort of a sales pitch, so to speak, uh, about the gospel, asking people to come into the faith. What this is, is a booster shot in the arm of faith. This is chicken soup for the soul of the believer. That's what it's there to do, to strengthen our faith, to remind us of the blessings that God has given us. That said, if you're here investigating Christianity this morning, it's good to have a look over the garden fence, isn't it? What would it be like if I was a believer? But the primary role here is to remind us of the blessings that we enjoy by faith. The blessings that we enjoy because Jesus has done it all. And these are blessings that we're to preach to ourselves. When we feel not blessed, when we feel the problems all rising, these are things that we can tell ourselves that God has done for us. Because Jesus has done it all. So because we have these blessings, what are they? Well, uh, you'll find that some of them link a little bit with Romans 8. If you want to sort of, sort of something to do afterwards, have a look at Romans 8 and see how it links together. <clears throat> but our first blessing is we have peace with God. Do you see that there in verse 1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Now, peace can have various meanings. You know, you've got your peace of mind peace, that sort of feeling inside. You've got that peace and quiet peace. I remember that from sometime before we had children, sometime there. Peace and quiet peace you can have, can't you? And then you've got war and peace peace. And it's really that third one that's in mind here. Peace with God. Peace with God is a ceasing of hostilities. The Bible tells us that we were at war with God. We were his enemies ever since our first parents declared war on God by disobeying him and becoming rebels. But now, because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of God justifying, declaring right with him, those people that were rebels once, and doing it freely, offering us amnesty, so to speak, in the war, we now have peace with God. 
That means if we are trusting in Jesus, we are no longer God's enemies. So that's the basic meaning of that word peace. But peace in the Bible is that, but it's more than that. It's not less than that, but more. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom. And it implies something more than the ceasing of hostilities. It implies a wholeness, a completeness to a relationship. So it's not just that we're no longer at war with God. It's the fact that we are now friends with God. We're at peace. We're on friendly terms. In fact, God, instead of working against us now, is working for our good. So if you want a bit of an illustration of this, think about Russia. We are not at war with Russia. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're on friendly terms, does it? If you sort of watch the news. We're not at war, but we're not exactly at peace, as the Bible describes it. But the amazing truth here is that we are at peace with God. That's an incredible blessing that we don't deserve. To be on friendly terms with the creator of the universe. And it's by faith, not our own working, God's working. He has made peace by Jesus dying on the cross. So God has made us at peace. But as I say, we're prone to forget our blessings, aren't we? What might a Christian life look like if we forgot this blessing, if we forget it? If we forget that God is our friend, we'll still be tempted to think of him as our enemy. Far from being in that secure relationship with God, actually our relationship will feel very insecure. We might start to think that he's against us, when actually he's for us. We'll begin to misread his motives. We'll misread events happening in our life. And that will undermine all the other blessings that we'll see, because we won't believe that God would give us those blessings. But the amazing truth is that we are at peace with God. That relationship is secure. We've no need for those insecurities because God is the one who's made peace through Jesus Christ. He is the one that offered us amnesty, not the other way around. So we can enjoy the blessing of peace with God. Secondly, we have access into grace. We have access into grace. That's the second blessing. Have a look at verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into grace, into this grace in which we stand. Now, there's two key words in this blessing. Access and grace. Access carries the idea of being brought into someone's presence. Like in times gone by, you would be brought into the presence of a great king, granted access to him, welcomed into his court, his domain. That is what the word here means. That's what it's talking about. Jesus has brought us somewhere. He has granted us access to somewhere. And that place is grace. Now you might expect it to say access to God. We do have that language in the Bible, don't we? That we have access to the Father. But here it says access into grace. The grace in which we stand. Grace here is pictured as a place in which you physically are, which you stand. A status, a standing before God. 
And what it's saying here is that we're now under grace because of Jesus. In grace's domain. In grace's court. Grace is almost pictured here like a country that we enter. We're no longer in the domain of sin or law. We're now in the domain of grace. So thanks to Jesus, we're in a land of grace. We're in Graceland. <laughs> You're like, yeah? We've been granted a new passport and we're here with a new ruler. Grace. We've been welcomed into the rule of grace by Jesus. And that means we no longer have to earn our place, do we? We no longer need to compete like the world does. Jesus has led us by the hand into Graceland, where all is ordered by grace, God's unmerited kindness towards us, a land of unconditional love and acceptance. What a blessing is that? Isn't that what everybody's looking for? What we all want deep down? And we have access to it, a welcome into grace through Jesus. And that means, actually, if that's what we're welcomed into, church should reflect that too, shouldn't it? Church should be a grace land, ordered by grace. But as I say, we're prone to forget this, aren't we? What might the Christian life look at if we forget this blessing? Well, if we forget that we're in the realm of grace, and have been granted access to it by Jesus then we'll live and act as though we're in the realm of law or sin. We'll start to begin, even as Christians, to make it all about ourselves and our day-to-day obedience and our rule-keeping. And we'll make it for others about them keeping our rules and about their obedience. Not forgiveness, but conformity to our standards and our expectations. And then we'll find, if we live like that, won't we, that our churches will become like that too. Realms of sin and law. Too many churches, as years go by, turn into realms of sin and law, don't they? Instead of being a church full of grace and forgiveness, welcoming others as they themselves are welcomed, they become places where people act like policemen rather than pastors. Partially rebuking or sneering at those who break their unspoken rules. Forgiveness is forgotten. Pride is pervasive. Barriers are built up to stop people coming in. Outcasts are cast out rather than welcomed. Well, that's the church that's lost the gospel, isn't it? But it probably actually thinks it's a a bastion against the plague of sin, doesn't it? Outside. Yet inside, the sins of pride, hypocrisy, and judgmentalism are rife. Nobody wants to join a church like that, do we? Or nobody should want to join a church like that. But we're not in that realm anymore. We're in the realm of grace. We recognise that all of us need grace. We recognise that all of us are works in progress. And just as God shows us grace, we show grace to one another. We're under the realm of grace. So that's the second blessing. We have access into grace. We've been welcomed into it. And we need to preach that to ourselves, don't we? Third blessing. We rejoice in hope. Have a look at the second part of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoicing is a natural outcome for a Christian justified by faith. 
The word is a little different in Greek, though, from what we might think. It's also translated elsewhere as boasting, even bragging. The best phrase I've come across to put across the full meaning, really, is it means to be joyfully confident in something. So it's an attitude of the heart, really, rather than an action. It can lead to rejoicing out loud, but really it's a state of the heart, a state of the mind. And there are three things that we rejoice in in this passage that we can be joyfully confident of. And the first one is this one, the hope of the glory of God. Whatever our circumstances, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can be joyfully confident that the glory of God will one day be ours. You see, we were created to display God's glory to the world as his image bearers. Our problem is, as we've seen in Romans, that we fall short of that glory. So Romans 3.23, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What this is talking about is that one day we won't fall short. One day we will share in and display his glory as we were supposed to. So I said there's lots of links with Romans 8, Romans 8, 20 and 21. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What it's saying there is that even though everything we do is now tainted by sin, one day it won't be. So we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. One day we will be renewed. Even creation will share this with us in the renewal. If things seem bad now, we can still rejoice in the certainty of what is to come. If the news is getting us down now, we can focus on the good news and its implications for the future, our future. We can still rejoice in the hope that we have, the glory of God, and all because of our justification by faith. But again, we're prone to forget this, aren't we? What if we forget this blessing? Well, if we forget this blessing, we'll focus too heavily on the present We will forget that there is more to come and instead focus entirely on the here and now. We're at risk of becoming discouraged, aren't we, if we just focus on what's happening now. The here and now can bring us down, but our hope is secure. We can always focus on the bright future that God has prepared for those he loves. So we'll we'll focus too heavily on the present. And also, if we forget this blessing, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but bear with me. If we forget this blessing, we'll focus too heavily on our sin. Now, some of you are thinking, is it possible to focus too heavily on our sin? And whilst it's true that most of us tend to minimise our sin, don't we? We tend to make out that we're not as bad as we really are. But it's also possible to give sin too great a place in our Christian lives, a place where it worries us unnecessarily. It is the hope of the glory of God. One day we will reach that standard, but not in this life. 
If we think that sinless perfection is the norm, we will treat sin in our life very differently, won't we? Personal sin becomes not a reminder of a fallen world that we are part of, but evidence that we're not really saved. That's what we'll think of it. If we were saved, then we wouldn't sin. But we don't rejoice in the glory of God here and now. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That one day we will be like him, sinless and spotless. Sin is not so great an enemy that it can undo what God has done in Christ. One day God will do away with sin once and for all. And then we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. But until then, we should expect sin in our lives. Not welcome it, not nurture it, but we should expect it. When we fail, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that one day we will not fail him as we do now. It's a hope for the future, and we can rejoice in that. We can be joyfully confident of that. Blessing number four. I know we're going at quite a pace, but there are seven. Blessing number four, we rejoice in suffering. Have a look at verses three to five. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that who has been given to us. This is perhaps one of the strangest sounding blessings, isn't it, that comes from justification by faith. It sounds a bit like masochism, you know, the idea of taking pleasure in pain. But we need to remember what it means. It's not saying we're to sing celebration songs in the midst of suffering. Having said that, remember Paul and Silas sang hymns when they were locked up in prison. But that was a byproduct, really, of what this is talking about. It's saying we can be joyfully confident in our suffering. Why? Because God is at work for good, even in our suffering. The process is explained here a bit like a silver chain that leads to even more hope at the end of it. He tells us that suffering produces endurance, patience, staying power. In one sense... As people say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. For a Christian, that is sort of true. It's, it's there for a purpose, to make us stronger. I remember hearing years ago that they were doing a test on trees, uh, trying to prepare them for Mars, you know, see if they could plant trees on, on the red planet. And they made this sort of giant dome, and they put these trees in the dome. And what they found was that actually the trees, actually, weren't, when they sort of tested them, they weren't very strong. At all, and they were trying to work out, you know, what's going wrong? Why aren't these trees, why are they sort of bendy? And it turned out, they worked out, that basically, because they had this giant dome around them, the trees had never been exposed to any wind. There's never anything pushing against them. So actually, the trees hadn't needed to grow strong, so they hadn't. Whereas normal trees, they've always got the elements against them, haven't they? And it makes them stronger. That's what it's saying here. Suffering produces endurance, patience, staying power. But that's not the end of the chain. Endurance produces character. Now that word character there means a specimen of tried worth. 
something that has been tested and shown to have endured. So think about it this way. Have you ever tested a, a bit of floor to check that you could step on it? I remember whenever I go up into our attic, we don't have it boarded. So I have to sort of, sort of gently put my foot down to sort of check whether there's, it's got um, uh, the uh, insulation over the top of it. So you can't see. So you've just got to sort of test it slowly, you know, to make sure that you can put your foot down. What you're standing on, if, it, if you stand on it and it stays, and you don't go through the, the ceiling or the floor, whichever way you want to look at it, if it stays, if you're still standing, it has testedness. It has character. It has endurance that has been tested and proven solid. And that character, that testedness, produces hope. If we've been tested and found solid, that gives us hope. If you've been through a period of suffering in your life, and your faith remains intact at the end of it, that gives you hope. It points to the fact that your faith is real. Suffering has not destroyed it. In fact, in the long run, it strengthens you. Think of suffering like the sun. I know it's hard to imagine this morning, but think of it like the sun. It strengthens concrete, but it melts the ice. If your faith is still standing after suffering, it's evidence that it's solid. When the sun has shined on it, it's made it stronger. If not, the heat of suffering would have melted it away. And that means we can be joyfully confident in our sufferings. That might mean that we end up singing in our prison cell. But it could equally mean that we, as we suffer... We don't lose heart. Or as we suffer, we don't fall into despair, knowing that God has not abandoned us. As we suffer, nothing will rob us of the certainty that God is with us and is working out some good purpose in it for us and for his glory. But we're prone to forget, aren't we, our blessings? What might life as a Christian look like if we forget this blessing? Well, if we forget that we can rejoice in suffering, be joyfully confident, then we might be tempted to despair in suffering. We'll become distrustful of providences that God gives us. We'll treat good gifts from God, given for us for our good, we'll treat them as punishments doled out for our harm. You know what I mean? I think all of us think that at times, don't we? When that seemingly bad thing happens in your life and you're tempted to think, does God hate me? Why is he doing this to me? But the truth is, God is working even in the midst of our suffering. There is reason for hope, even in the darkest times. We can be joyfully confident, even in the midst of suffering. And we need to remember that, don't we? We need to preach that to ourselves through times of suffering. Blessing number five. God loves us and shows it. Have a look at verses six to eight. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Believe it or not, this is the first mention of love in the book of Romans. Five chapters in. So often I've heard the gospel explained by others as the gospel is God loves you and has an amazing plan for your life. Now, of course, God's love undergirds everything that we've seen so far in Romans. But we sort of think that that's something nice to say to unbelievers, don't we? But the book of Acts, for example, where we see all the examples of evangelistic preaching, God's love is not actually mentioned once. Paul sees God's love towards us as something encouraging and strengthening to remind believers of here, interestingly. Now, I'm not saying that we don't preach God's love evangelistically. Don't, don't hear me wrong. In fact, we're going to want to talk of it, aren't we? Because we're going to want to talk about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And what does it tell us here? That the cross is a demonstration of God's love towards us. So, of course, we're going to talk about it. But it's here to strengthen believers. That's what this passage is for. It's there to assure us of God's love towards us. And it does this in two ways, really, in this passage. The first one is the testimony of the Spirit. And the second one is the testimony of the cross. The testimony of the Spirit, we see it there in verse 5. Second part. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What he's saying there is that we know that that hope will not put us to shame, the hope of what is to come, because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now there's a big debate amongst the commentators, is this God's love for us, or is this our love for God? Well in context, it must be God's love for us. That's what it's talking about, that's what it talks about in the next passage. Having said that, that love that uh, God pours into our hearts overflows, doesn't it, to God and to others. Our hearts are supposed to be bless- uh, vessels, blessings, blessing vessels, there we go, uh, vessels uh, to shed God's love abroad. But what would it mean that God's love is poured into our hearts by the Spirit? Well, the parallel again we see in Romans 8, Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What it's saying there is that we see that we are children of God, that we are loved by God, our Father. Indeed, we have been adopted as his beloved children, haven't we? So there is an internal testimony of the Spirit that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. A close relationship of love. But the internal testimony that we have there is not always so clear, isn't it? Our hearts may have had God's love poured into them, but they're still desperately wicked and deceitful, we're told in the Bible. Our hearts are prone to lie to us. So God has given us a second witness of his love towards us, the testimony of the cross. When you doubt that God is loving... And the testimony of the Spirit is being drowned out by a million and one other voices. Look at the testimony of the cross. God has shown his love once and for all in history on the cross. 
1 John 4 verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that takes God's wrath for our sins. What it's saying there is that Jesus' death is the supreme demonstration of God's love. Now, sometimes we're suspicious of talking about the cross as that. Some who take the cross less seriously talk about the cross as merely a gesture of God's love. An example for us to follow, like the verse we saw before, but nothing more. But the cross was no mere gesture. The cross was love in action. The cross was an act of love. And if it was merely a gesture, it wouldn't be an act of love. Because what would it be a gesture of? Let me put it this way to you. Imagine a man says to his wife, I love you. Let me show you how much I love you. And then throws himself under a bus. That is not a gesture of love. That's a death wish. That's not really loving his wife, is it? Let me give you a different scenario. A man says to his wife, I love you. As he pushes her out of the way of a bus and goes under it. That's an act of love, isn't it? The cross was God sacrificing himself for his people. That is why it's an act of love. It's not just a gesture, it was doing something. God sacrificed himself for his people. And not good people, bad people, the ungodly. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Few people would go under a bus, he's saying, for a righteous man, for someone who always does what's right, a bit of a goody two-shoes. Though for a kind man, someone might dare to die. But God didn't die for nice people who treated him well. He died for rebels who treated him terribly. You might love your partner enough to die for them. You might love your family enough to die for them. But to die for your enemy? Whose love is so great that they would die for their enemies? God's love is so great that he would die for his enemies. He doesn't love the lovely. He loves the loveless, the unlovely. Like that old hymn, my song is love unknown, my saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. What he's saying is, remember, God's love is so big that he died for us when we were his enemies. We can be assured of his love because when we were at our lowest point, he died for us then. And we're no longer at our lowest point. That's really his next point. So what might the Christian life look like if we forget this blessing, that God loves us and shows it? Well, if we forget this blessing, then we'll underestimate the value of the cross. And if we minimise the cross, we minimise God's love, don't we? Because that's where God's love is ultimately seen. You see, it's not a playoff between preaching God's love and teaching that Jesus took God's wrath on the cross. The cross proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves sinners like you and like me. 
We cannot doubt God's commitment to his people when we look at the cross. And if we forget this blessing, we will overestimate the power of sin. If we forget God's love for sinners, we might be tempted to think that our sin can get in the way of God's love. We can overestimate its power, thinking that if we sin, God doesn't love us anymore. And it's true that when we sin willingly and repeatedly, it can quieten that inner witness of the Spirit, makes it quieter. But it cannot silence the witness of the cross. Sin is an affront to God, sin is atrocious, but it cannot undo the cross. Because the cross was there to deal with sin, to save sinners. Sin is truly awful, but it's not powerful enough to break again what God has unbroken through the cross. So we need to remember that when we're tempted to despair at our sin. Blessing six. Our salvation is secure. Have a look at verses nine and ten. Therefore, sorry, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This point really develops the last one. Christ died for us when we were his enemies, but now we're his friends. If he loved us so much when we were his enemies, is he going to treat us less well now that we're his friends? No. If he justified us when we were against him, he's not now going to abandon us to face his wrath, is he? If he saved us when we were sinners, he's going to keep us to the end now that we're his friends. And that means our salvation is secure. There's no chance that God will abandon his people. There's no chance that he'd die for us and then give us up. There's no chance that he would love his enemies and then love his friends less than that. We've been reconciled to God, made his friends. How then will he not save us in the final judgment? Well, what might the Christian life look like if we forget this blessing? Well, if we forget this, we'll begin to lose our assurance of our final salvation. Our assurance becomes hazy or daisy. You know the daisy? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. But God will not abandon those he sent his son to die for. It would make no logical sense for Jesus to shed his blood for someone that he will not finally save. So we can rest secure in our final destiny because of Jesus' work on the cross. God doesn't do half jobs. If he started a work in you, He'll carry it on to completion. He won't leave you half saved. He saves fully to the utmost. So be assured our final salvation is secure. And then finally, blessing seven. We rejoice in God. Have a look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I think perhaps this is the greatest blessing of all of them. We rejoice in God. We are joyfully confident in him. Now do you know the phrase has already been used in Romans, the exact phrase that we've got here, 
of the Jews in chapter 2. But there it's used as a negative thing. Romans 2.17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, see it's translated boast there, but it's the same word. What's so wrong with it there that means it's okay here? How does that work? Well, there, it's not based on justification on faith alone, is it? It's based on them justifying themselves. In fact, we're told explicitly that they're relying on the law. That's literally the sentence before, isn't it? How can they be joyfully confident in God when they're relying on their own rule-keeping? Wouldn't that mean, really, that they're joyfully confident in themselves? We cannot be joyfully confident in God and that reconciliation made by Jesus, and at the same time, joyfully confident in ourselves. We can either find our joy and confidence in God, or we can delude ourselves finding our joy and confidence in other things. Things that cannot bring us lasting joy, Things not reliable enough to put our confidence in them. And that's the danger, isn't it? What if we forget this blessing? Well, if we forget this blessing, we begin to try and find our joy and confidence in other things. We boast in our achievements. Not always bad things. We start to boast in our families or our high moral standards. We rejoice in our accomplishments, keeping rules we've set ourselves even claiming blessings from God as our own making. But Paul elsewhere in Galatians 6 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's not different from boasting in God, what he's talking about there. It's the same thing. Because joyful confidence in God is joyful confidence in the cross. Trusting in Jesus, not ourselves. Justification by faith alone. That's the root of all these blessings. That's why we can number them. Seven of them here. Count them. God has given these to us to keep us going. It's as though the heckler has said, well, what's, what's better about the way you've got it than what I've got it? We say, well, look, blessing one, blessing two, blessing three, all by faith, all by trusting in Jesus. So do you feel blessed? Well, hopefully after those seven reminders, you feel a bit more blessed than you did at the beginning. The challenge now is to remember them, to keep bringing them to mind, to preach them to ourselves. So that you can remember whatever comes at you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, you are blessed. Because all this is not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus. Because God himself has blessed you in Christ. So brothers and sisters, let's preach these things to ourselves. Let's remind ourselves of all that God has done for us in Christ. And rejoice in that. Let's pray that we would do that now. Father God, thank you for all the blessings we've been reading about this morning. Father, we pray that we remember just how blessed we are by what you have given us in Christ and not tempted to go back into systems where we think it's all about us and our rule keeping. Father, help us to remember that we are justified by faith alone. And Father, thank you for these amazing blessings that flow from that. In Jesus' name, amen.